Thank you very much. And thank you for, for having me. It really is a, a pleasure uh, to be here. Um, thank you for your, your warmth. I was sharing with um, folks in the seminar this morning that I was in a, a men's Bible study group a few years ago with a, a few guys, one of whom was uh, from Ulster, and he offered for one of our socials to cook us an Ulster fry. So I decided to host this, and he, he came around with all his healthy ingredients, and um, he got through an entire bottle of oil uh, cooking this one breakfast for like four guys. I think it was the, the soda bread that did it, but um, very grateful for your, your hospitality, and what a privilege it is to open the scriptures together. Aren't we so thankful for a God who speaks to us, a God whose voice we can hear? Uh, it is a privilege to, to look at Mark's gospel. As I said last night, my, my prayer for myself and my prayer for you is that we would be reintroduced to Jesus. Uh, one of the big dangers in the Christian life is that the good news becomes old news. And we, we know it and it's familiar and we just sort of bandy it around, but it, it loses that urgency and preciousness um, yesterday I mentioned that, that Mark is, is a fast-paced gospel. He's, he's rushing us to the next thing that's going on. Um, it's action-packed. We don't have the same extended blocks of teaching that you see in some of the other gospels. But we mustn't think that Jesus is a man of action and not a man of words. Uh, in our passage this evening, Jesus is very much a man of words. He didn't just come to this world on a, on a fact-finding tour. He's not on a, a gap year from heaven uh, nor has he just come to be the, the presence of God in some wordless way. He's come with a message. He's come to us with words, words that have utterly unique power. Now, I don't know about you, but when I grew up, I was taught sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. I can't think of a more stupid thing that we say to our children. Uh, we know it's not true. Uh, we know very often that it is the words that can cause us sometimes even more harm than anything else. And it's worth just pausing there and thinking, why is that? Why should that the vibration of sound waves or whatever it is coming out of someone's mouth, why should that have the capacity to either make my life worth living or to absolutely destroy me. I was talking to, to someone I met recently who uh, is now in his, I think, about 40s, and he was telling me about something that was said to him when he was about 13 or 14, and how that thing that was said to him has haunted him his entire life. Even as he was sharing it with me, uh, those decades later, he was, he was in tears. Uh, the fact is, we live in a world that God has made by his word. God created this, this amazing planet we live on by speaking. Words have that kind of constructive power. And so we mustn't be surprised if words similarly can, can be so destructive. And so words matter. And some words in our lives matter far more than others. There are certain voices we instinctively inclined towards and certain voices that we tend to ignore. I know this very well because having been a pastor for a number of years, I know that when you give church notices and announcements, no one is listening. 
that the moment the, the pastor stands up at that point, there's, there's a bit in all of us that just kind of thinks, okay, I, just, I can tune out for a minute now and have a little, have a little nap. A number of times I've, I've said something in a, in a church notice and someone has come up to me afterwards and said, well, are, we, are you going to say anything about such and such? I actually did out loud through my microphone in a room that you were present in. So there's certain voices we tune out, certain voices we really do prioritise. Uh, there are certain people in our lives whose view of us, whose words about us, whose words to us matter enormously. And of course that should be most true of the Lord Jesus. Uh, if the words of a, of a loved one can affect us deeply, how much more can the words of Jesus change our lives? Now, the amazing thing is we don't know what Jesus sounded like. Uh, we don't have any recordings of his voice. No one describes what his voice sounded like. Uh, we don't know if his, his voice was was deep and resonant and, and booming. Uh, we don't know what kind of accents he would have had or what that would have sounded like. Uh, we don't know whether he said scone or scone. It's clearly scone. And yet these words can shape us more than any other. That's why I was so touched to hear of, of the Accessible Bible. What an amazing Beautiful initiative to make sure those precious, life-transforming words of Jesus are available and accessible to everyone. So our passage tonight introduces us to the unique power of the words of Jesus. And we're going to see that his words carry a unique message. They call for a unique response and they come with unique authority. So let's look at the first of those things. Jesus' words carry a unique message, and this is verses 14 and 15, if you uh, have Mark 1 in front of you. Uh, let me just read those two verses again. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. These are the first words of Jesus in Mark's gospel. These are the first public words of Jesus. This is Jesus launching his, his ministry. And so verse 15, if you like, is, is Jesus' press release. Uh, these are the first things he has to say. And these words, if you like, are typical of Jesus. They, they are his teaching in a nutshell. Uh, Jesus is extraordinary because he is the most humble man who ever lived. And yet who makes the most enormous claims about himself. So he says in verse 15, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And you, you see what's going on there. Jesus is saying the time is fulfilled. There's, there's a particular shape to time. There is a time that has been expected. A time that has been anticipated. And Jesus says that time is now here. That time has now arrived. And the implication is that time has come because I'm here. Jesus is saying I am what history has been leading to. 
He says the kingdom of God is at hand. All the, the big ticket items God said he was going to do in this universe, he is now going to do because I'm here. An amazing thing to say, and yet what a beautiful life of the one who says things like this. Uh, Jesus doesn't just announce these things, he, he calls us to respond. Because the time is fulfilled, because the kingdom of God is at hand, Jesus says, repent and believe in the gospel. I mentioned yesterday that the gospel is an announcement. And Jesus shows us here it's also a summons. It's not just one of those announcements where you kind of hear what's going on. You think, oh, okay, yep, right, okay, got it, great. And then you just move back on with life as normal. No, the gospel Jesus has come to share with us is going to transform our lives. Again, Jesus calls us to repent. We thought briefly about this last night, that it means to turn around. And again, the implication is not flattering. Jesus is saying that we are, we are oriented in our lives the wrong way. He's not come to say to us, you need to do a bit of fine-tuning. Your life needs a, a bit of a tweak here and there. He's not saying you're basically okay. You just need to, to kind of do a bit better in a few areas. No, Jesus says the whole direction of our lives needs to change. And actually, this verse shows us why repentance is so urgent. Um, in our local news back home a, a few years ago, there was a story about an old guy who had, in the middle of the night, somehow ended up driving on the wrong side of the motorway. Uh, no one quite knows how that happened. He was evidently confused and had somehow managed to get onto the wrong carriageway and managed to, to clock up two or three miles before someone kind of found him, caught up with him, and, and was man managed to sort of sort him out and get him home safely. Now, because it was the middle of the night, there were no other cars on the road. Uh, if this had happened at a different time of day at rush hour, it would have been a more tragic story. Well, Jesus is saying we are all driving the wrong way. And yet we are about to meet the rush hour of God's purposes coming in the other direction. The time has come. The kingdom of God is at hand. Therefore, we need to turn around. We need to repent. Now again, that is humbling. That is deeply humbling for all of us. But it's also strangely deeply affirming. The fact that Jesus comes to us and shares this with us and calls us to himself shows how precious we are to him. I think repentance is often misunderstood, so let me just make a, a couple of more comments about it. The first is, we don't have good news without repentance. There is no gospel without repentance. To say, well, God loves you just the way you are is only a half-truth. That God loves us as we are is, is 
Not a sign of how lovable we are as we are, but it's a, a sign of His grace to us. He doesn't wait for us to be ready for Him. He doesn't wait for us to be worthy of Him. No, the gospel shows us that God loves us enough to love us even as we are now. But the gospel also shows us that he loves us too much to leave us as we are now. But furthermore, we mustn't therefore think that repentance is, is like the, the precondition for the gospel. It's very easy for us to think, well, if I repent enough, then I get to have some good news. Then I get to, to kind of unlock God's love. And we think of the gospel as being a bit like one of those video games where you progress a certain amount and then you unlock the next level. And you think, well, if I repent and repent, if I have a few spiritual protein shakes and really repent, then God will love me. No, repentance is not the condition for God's love. Repentance actually is the fruit of it. The gospel says, I can repent. The good news is that Jesus calls us and enables us to turn. And that being able to turn is good news. We can turn to him. We can have our lives put the right way up. We can be put on the right track. Jesus says, repent and believe in the gospel. And wonderfully, we're going to see as, as Mark's gospel unfolds what that good news is. That Jesus can make us new. He can make us whole. He can restore us to our maker. And friends, that message is what all of us most need in life. That is what all of us most needs to hear. Every single day, we need to hear this message of Jesus. I know for myself every day I need to hear, repent and believe in the gospel. So let me ask you and let me ask myself this question. Whose voice are you prioritizing over the voice of Jesus? As you wake up, which are the voices you instinctively incline your heart to first? Do you reach for the phone? See if there's been any messages or any emails overnight. Do you reach for the radio to, to find out what's going on and to hear what our culture says you should be concerned about? Or is our first instinct to yearn for the voice of Jesus? To start the day with his voice uppermost in our consciousness. The words of Jesus carry a unique message. Uh, secondly, the words of Jesus call for a unique response. And this is verses 16 to 20. Uh, this is the account of Jesus calling his first disciples. It happens in, in two stages. In both cases, we have uh, a set of brothers. We have Simon and Andrew in verse 16. We have James and John in verse 19. And again, in both cases, we're, we're dealing with fishermen. Uh, in one case, they're, they're casting their nets. They're 
underway in the process of, of fishing, and in the next case, they're, they're mending their nets. They're at that stage of the process, getting the nets ready for the next day's work. And in both cases, they are called by Jesus, and they follow immediately. So let's look at the call that Jesus gives to them. Uh, verse 17, Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Uh, it's good to point out the obvious, because I know I often miss the obvious, but the obvious is Jesus calls us to follow him. Jesus calls us to Jesus. We were thinking last night about how Christianity is about a person. And therefore, being a Christian is about following that person. It's not primarily a set of moral allegiances or religious practices or spiritual disciplines or political convictions. It is devotion to Jesus. And friends, I say that because it's very easy to kind of get sucked into kind of Christian culture. Just to get into the habit of, of going to church, maybe we, we just instinctively like doing that. Maybe we like being with other believers. Uh, maybe we like the, the kind of Christian view on certain issues around us. It's possible for all of that to be true and for you not to be a Christian. Yeah. I don't know about you, but when I think about my Christian life, when, when someone says, hey, how's the Christian life going for you? I immediately think about my activity. Am I, am I going to church? Am I in small group? Am I praying? Am I reading my Bible? Those are great things. I don't think, typically, actually, do I love Jesus? Am I devoted to Jesus above all other things? How's my heart for him? Do I love him more than I used to? Is he, is he bigger in my life than he used to be? Jesus calls his disciples to Jesus. And the second half of verse 17, he also calls us to service. He says, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. A commitment to Jesus becomes a commitment to Jesus' mission. Uh, friends, those two things always go together. Uh, some people try to follow Jesus without serving him. Uh, they're not committed to living for him. They're not trying to submit their lives to him. They just want to add a bit of Jesus-flavoured spirituality to life. That is not following Jesus. That is not being a disciple and that is not Christianity. And some people try to serve Jesus without really following him. They're interested in Christian activity. They're, they're committed to Christian causes. But very quickly, our, our service to Jesus can matter more to us than our love for Jesus. We love what we do for him more than we love him. In which case, we're not actually serving him at all because it's not about him. No, Jesus calls us to become fishers of men. Now, I have to do some work getting my head around this concept because I'm not a fisherman. Uh, I, I like the water. I like rivers. I like the sea. I like lakes. That bit's good. 
I like boats. I like being on the water in a boat. That part I'm, I'm good with. The whole kind of flicking a, a long stick with a piece of string and a hook, that's where it gets tricky. Um, I, I hit people on the way. I, I snag tree branches. The odd, the odd cat gets injured. Uh, the one thing you can guarantee will happen is none of this will happen anywhere near a fish. But two things I do know about fishing, and the first is it's not easy. I know this much, fish aren't wanting to be caught. We've got to trick them with worms and all kinds of other things. Fish don't want to be fished, and nor do people. But there is a very significant difference Uh, What you are trying to do to a fish when you are fishing is in no way in the fish's best interest. Like Even if you're just wanting to catch them, to see them flap about and then put them back in the water, they're not up for that. (laughs) If only someone would just shove a hook in my mouth, yank me by the mouth out of the water, suffocate me in air for a few moments, traumatize me and then shove me back in. Uh, What we're doing with the fish doesn't serve the fish, but when it comes to this work of Jesus, actually, there is nothing better we could do for another human being than to introduce them to Jesus Christ, to bring them under Jesus' voice into relationship with him. I was just reading a a biography of uh, Ronald Reagan recently, and you will know that before Ronald Reagan was a a president, he was an actor. But you may not know that before he was an actor, he was a lifeguard. And he's thought to have have actually saved dozens and dozens of people. And he said on one occasion that the most common response to him rescuing them was anger. He said, people don't like being rescued. Fishing is not easy. And the second thing I, I, even I know about fishing is that it, that it takes time. I think this is part of the appeal. My, my secret theory, and some of you can confirm or correct this, is that people like fishing because it's just a wonderful occasion to sit by the water and not do anything. <laughs> your little chair, you've got your little tent, you've got your sandwiches, maybe a book to read. Somewhere in your consciousness there's a fishing rod and a, and a body of water, but it's, it just seems a nice opportunity to nap by water. And I'm all for that. It's not, as far as I can see, labour-intensive. It's not going to have a constant action and constant moving and constant doing things. And that again tells us something about the kingdom of God. Fishing for people is is not going to look like a dramatic and impressive way to grow the kingdom of God. It takes time. Uh, One life at a time is going to come into the kingdom, and, and some of those lives can take a jolly long time to get there. Which is why what we, we need what Jesus says to these first disciples. He says, I will make you become fishers of men. This is not something we're all intrinsically going to be good at. This is not something that we can just do off, off the bat. We need Jesus to make us become fishers of men.
which means there's no place for, for pride. We can't say, hey, look at me. I have got this many people into the kingdom this year. If God uses us in any way to bring people to Jesus, it is because Jesus has made us become a fisher of men. There's no place for pride. But similarly, there's, there's no place for saying, well, I just, it's not for me. I, I don't, I'm not really into that kind of thing. I'll, I'll just stand over here while, while you do the fishing bit. No, all of us need Jesus to develop this work in us. Actually, it's part of our discipleship to be made those who care about the mission of Jesus. Now, what that fishing will look like in each case will vary wonderfully because God has made us so different. But a sign that we follow Jesus is that we, we love his work. We love his mission. So that is the call. They're calling, Jesus is calling them to himself and he's calling them to service. And then look at the response. Look at the response that they make. Firstly, look at what they leave. Uh, verse 18, immediately they left their nets and followed him. Uh, verse 20, immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. In one case, they, they leave their, their nets. In the other case, they leave their own father. And those two things would have gone together. Uh, family and work life were the same thing. You did what your family did, what your family probably had always done. May well have been many generations that these men had, had been fishing those shores. Uh, we mustn't get the wrong impression. Now, Jesus is not saying that the moment we come to him, we just abandon all our worldly responsibilities. We just kind of ditch the family and cease caring for them. As it happens, after Jesus died, these disciples went back to their fishing. They hadn't fully abandoned it. They still had those nets. They still had those boats. Now, the point Jesus is making is that when we follow him, we have a dramatic new allegiance. We don't add him to our existing list of commitments. No, Jesus becomes the center of everything. Friends, when you were called by Jesus Christ, he wasn't just calling you to, to sort of fit him in somewhere. Jesus was calling you to come before your livelihood, to come before your family, to come before your work, to come before your security, to come before every other identity you might have for yourself. When it comes to Jesus, anything else that was once first in our lives is now at best a very, very distant second. Um, I learned recently that uh, during the Crusades, as some of the soldiers were, were baptised, they would hold their swords above their head and above the water as if to say, this much of me is becoming a Christian, but not the bit that is holding this sword. They're going to keep control of that part of our life. And the question for us is, what about us? What are we holding back from Jesus? What are we allowing to, to be uppermost in our hearts? What are we allowing to come before him? What are we holding back? 
What are we making off limits to him? Um, I love offering hospitality. I love having people round to my house. And um, one of the things I do is my house is normally a bit of a mess. And so about 10 minutes typically before people come round, that seems plenty of time to me, I gather up all the mess that I can find and shove it all in the spare room and then just close that door. And then when the guests have left, I go back up to that spare room and redistribute all the mess to back where it was. It just, it's a much easier system. And that means when the guests come round, the whole house is available to them, except that room. Okay, that door stays firmly shut. If I could get that, that kind of police tape you put around crime scenes and put it across the door, I would. Now, that works with guests. works brilliantly with guests. That doesn't work with God. We cannot say to God, listen, you are welcome in... in look at all these areas of my life I'm, I'm opening up to you, but there's this room over here and you're not going near that. Jesus calls us to yield everything to him. He asks for nothing less. My friends, he is worthy of nothing less. And if we had an iota of common sense about us, we would be saying, Jesus, I need you in every area. Please come on in. But so often we still think, no, 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 if I, if I keep this back from Jesus, it'll be better. He, he doesn't quite understand this bit. And so we hold back. We don't follow him fully. We don't give him our all. We, we just try to fit him in, and it's such an unstable compound. No, these disciples immediately, they leave and follow him, and they do so straight away. When Jesus calls them, they don't go, oh, right, yes, um, brilliant, let, let, me, let me just figure out a few things, make some arrangements, and then I'm right there. There are no ifs and buts, there, there's no putting it off. There's, as soon as they receive the call, they obey it. So my friend, if you are aware that Jesus is putting his finger on something in your life, I don't know what that thing might be. I do know that now is the time to respond. Whatever it is, now is the best time to respond. Nothing will be better by you deferring, obeying what Jesus is calling you to do. Uh, one of the most dangerous habits we can get into in the Christian life is to delay obedience. And yet my heart wants to do that all the time. God convicts me of a sin and I think, yeah, I, I really do need to sort that out. Tomorrow. When things are a bit quieter. I just need to get through what I'm, I'm doing in life right now. And, and then, absolutely, God, I'll, I'll be all over that. I'll be on the case. We will sort it out. But the longer we leave our response to Jesus, actually, the harder it gets. 
the very fact that Jesus is calling us to himself means that Jesus is giving us the means to come to him. And the danger is if we take that calling, that invitation, and if we say, that doesn't fit in just yet, but I have heard you, and, and yes, definitely at some point, we may find that Jesus withdraws from us the capacity to respond. It may well be that our hearts get hardened and we're thinking, actually, I just don't want to. No, discipleship Jesus shows us here is total and it is urgent. And if we understand the man who's calling us to it, of course it's total. Of course it's urgent. What could be better than having Jesus in control of our lives? And so I ask the question again, whose voice are you prioritizing over Jesus's? Whose voice are you letting control your life other than Jesus? Who is it that you are giving that kind of power to over you? That kind of authority to? Whose approval is it that weighs more heavily on your consciousness than that of Jesus? Who is it you want to obey and please more than Jesus? Jesus' words call for a unique response because the one who speaks those words is himself unique. No one else has the right to ask of you what Jesus is asking of you. No one else can be trusted with the things that Jesus is asking you to give to him. You put anyone else in that place, it will not go well for you. I was sharing in the, the seminar this morning, one of the things that is so beautiful about Jesus Christ is he he knows us far better than we know ourselves. I hope you know that. Jesus knows you better than you do. Jesus loves you more than you do. And get this, Jesus is more committed to your ultimate joy than you are. So why on earth wouldn't you trust him? What could possibly go better in your life if you don't listen to Jesus? Jesus' words have a unique message and his words call for a unique response. Friends, we need to cherish those words of Jesus. Because the words of Jesus that announce that the coming of the kingdom, the words of Jesus that call us to follow him, the words of Jesus that, that call us to, to abandon everything else and put him first, 
That is the same voice that spoke of a cross awaiting for him in Jerusalem. It is the same voice that spoke of a death that he didn't deserve but was going to face. The same voice that spoke of a a ransom that would be paid by him for us. That same voice spoke of a grave that was going to be emptied. Of new life that was going to be poured out. It is the same voice that in Mark 2 says to one precious man, Son, your sins are forgiven. What voice could possibly matter more than his I have half a passage left and I'm going to leave that for now friends I think God wants us to think on this to think on our discipleship to ask ourselves the question what are we holding back what are we tempted to put above Jesus What haven't we given him? What even now are we thinking, yeah, not now, not this. And now is the time to respond. I'm going to invite the the band to come up and to lead us as we begin our response. And then what I suggest we do is this. There are a number of Wonderful people here who are serving this conference by making themselves available to pray with. Often that will be in one of the the tents, I can't remember which one. Tonight I'm going to ask them to come to the front during this next song. I'm going to ask us to remain seated. Am I allowed to do that? Look at this, I'm I'm drunk with power right now. Um, (laughs) Let's remain seated during this song. Let's use this song to reflect on the call of Jesus on our lives. The prayer team will will come to the front during that song. And then after that song, I'll come up again. I'll lead us in a time of prayer. I'll invite us to come forwards to receive prayer, to recommit our lives to Jesus. So let's just spend the next few moments as we worship God in song. Let's let the call of Jesus percolate in our hearts and minds.